heard somebody say that manufacturing done more to help people out of poverty than uh, any of the charity work or, or different kind of things. And it just made sense then because I realized how manufacturing can reduce prices and increase uh, increase the living standards because you can reduce the inputs and you can produce so much that it gives people a way to get out up and out of poverty. Welcome everybody to Equality Podcast Season 2. Today we're excited to have with us James Davis. James is an industrial engineer with Epitech and what caught my attention was James's headline in LinkedIn. I believe that talk and lean help make people's lives better and that really resonated with me. We're going to have a great conversation about that today. So James, why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself? Yeah, I, uh, I'm an industrial engineer. I went through school the first time and uh, I didn't do so well in electrical engineering. And I went out and lived life for a while and I went back to school in my uh, early 30s. And I really didn't understand industrial engineering, but I knew I kind of liked accounting and I was reading through all the stuff and I, I thought it fit me better than, than electrical. And then I was listening to some, some podcasts then and I heard somebody say that manufacturing done more to help people out of poverty than uh, any of the charity work or, or different kind of things. And it just made sense then because I realized how manufacturing can reduce prices and increase, uh, increase the living standards because you can reduce the inputs and you can produce so much that it gives people a way to get out up and out of poverty. Um, and that just struck with me and uh, it kind of, cemented me into industrial engineering and then kind of got it the way I'm, you know, I was thinking from there. Um, so that's awesome. a little short history. Yeah. Great. I really, uh, I like that story because it resonates a lot with my values, you know, and how I think about uh, things and, and in my journey of continuous improvement, improving businesses, even consulting, what I'm, what I really want to do is make people's lives better. And I've been, you know, I've worked in operations. I've worked in, you know, massive factories and some smaller ones. Um, and I've worked in some that were great places to work. And, and the worst day was coming in saying, well, I guess I have to work for eight hours, make my paycheck. Right. And the best day you were engaged and learning mm -hmm. and doing stuff. And then I worked in other plants where every day was, holy shit, I don't want to look that guy in the face, you know, um, and I don't want anyone to experience that, right? I've been meaning to apologize to you about that. Oh, that, you know, I forgive you, Jake. I think we've mended that bridge. So, you know, I, I appreciate you publicly apologizing for your face. Um, <laughs> but, but, you know, it, who hasn't worked at least one job that sucked? And sometimes the suckage is because of crappy leaders, uh, but more often than not, it's the result of crappy processes. Like the way you're actually doing the work is difficult. There's a lot of opportunity for it to just fail and you don't have control over it. And in my experience, that is the uh, most fearful and psychologically unsafe for an employee to be in 
is an environment where they don't have control over the outcomes, but they're held accountable for the outcomes. And unfortunately, that's a large portion of jobs out there at, at multiple levels, right? Yeah, it's the red bait experiment. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Tell that. Tell that to our uh, audience. Oh, uh, so you've got to read Damien and watch some of his videos. There's actually, you know, I would I looked for a while and I couldn't find any, and then somehow they they're they're there now. I don't know, but there's actually a video of Damien running some of those experiments, which is which is wild because he's got this very interesting cadence of how he talks. And once you listen to him for a little bit, you'll never be able to read anything he has that, that you think he said without reading it in Deming's voice. Right. Right. I, I, I don't do impressions. I wish I could, but you know, it's like Morgan Freeman or something. You can just know how he sounds. Uh, but yeah, so being accountable and without uh, having control. So the red bead experiment is you get some people together and you, you give them this big, tub of beads and there's some red beads mixed in with white beads and you give them a scoop and you say all right your job is to scoop beads don't get any red beads in there and then you scoop beads and of course you don't have any control of your scoop or what the bead situation is and then they you scoop and somebody marks down it's like three and then the person behind you scoops and it's two and the person behind you scoops and it's five and then Demi comes up behind you and goes mm -hmm, good job today uh john uh, Janice, you've got five beads. Mm, we're gonna have to work that out. And uh, so, you know, if you can't, if you prove, if you're, uh, if if you can't improve uh, your performance, then we're, we're gonna have to discussion. So it goes through a couple more trials, and then by randomness, and finally somebody's got like 10, 15 beads compared to anybody else. And he's like, oh yeah, your performance is really poor, and uh, we're just gonna have to let you go, uh, or some kind of reprimand. So it's a it's a, a very easy way to show how sometimes uh, things that are outside of your control, you're being held accountable for, uh, like quality or supplier defects or things in your process that you can't control, like maybe the screw gun's over torqued or the machinery that you're working with messes up. And it's, I think it's more to not feel the employees, not to get the employees to feel better about their jobs, but to, to kind of shake management up some to say, hey, look, you got to be aware that the position you've put your employees in, that you're not giving them a, a system to fail and a, and a bad process and then trying to hold them accountable for that. And it's uh, and it's just trivial for you because now you're trying to you're you're looking in the wrong direction for what's actually the problem. Yeah, great uh, exposition of that uh, powerful visual learning that Deming put out. Um, and it really, that's the root of what we're talking about is we, the process is going to introduce some bad outputs, uh, but we hold people accountable. And, and I think Deming had kind of a crusade against that, which he should have. But, you know, the other side of that is here we are 40 years later, and we're still doing the same stuff. So 100 years later. Yeah, a hundred years later. If you go back, I mean, uh, is it? I think it's Bobby. In I can't say his last name. In, in Maliani, I'm sorry, Bob, but he's a professor and he's got Bob Emiliani. There you go. Okay. You know what I'm talking it's about. Time but, you know, I we have to make this very clear because I don't want to offend Professor Bob. So, yes, just in case he watches this video, which he won't, because our videos suck. But. <laughs> 
Bob Emiliani, Professor Bob Emiliani, who we respect and hold in high esteem. We're sorry for butchering your name. Okay, go ahead, Chase. <laughs> yeah, I'm I'm sorry, Professor Bob. Uh, you know, I I know a little bit. I haven't unfortunately I haven't read his books yet, but he's he's big. I've read Taylor. I know Taylor can be controversial for some people, uh, but I I read him in a in a light more favorable, I guess, as opposed to reading, trying to read them with today's standards or read it at a 1900 standard of the kind of situation that people lived in, in the 1900s. Right. Um, yeah. We've evolved since then, but yes, he's still ahead of his time. Right. Uh, and reading some of the works and some of the critiques of what Taylor was saying today is almost word for word. What I hear out of factory people or factory today, it's like, it's like they read it and then repeated it, but they didn't. It just came out to say it's it's the exact same response, you know, a hundred years later. And so people are people, uh, no matter what century they're in, apparently. Yeah, I shared a, a funny on LinkedIn that was a leadership book, and the quote was the Ladybird's leadership book of how to keep firing people until they figure it out. Yeah. <laughs> and in that same vein, like it seems like since that early 1900s. Like, who's reading this book and sharing this knowledge with everybody? Because <laughs> it's what every bad leader is doing everywhere. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, the old revolving door. So, James, I wanted to talk yeah. to you today a little bit about the situational nature of lean. So you're a mm -hmm. big proponent of theory of constraints, which, by the way, uh, I am as well as a as a physics theory um, talk really helped me more in optimizing specific operations, I think, than any other uh, discipline. Mm -hmm. um, and then lean as well. So you're a big proponent of that, but we're going to put a but in there. Um, yeah. Theory of constraints, lean, Six Sigma, whatever tools you're using for operational excellence and continuous improvement, uh, they are situational. So tell me a little bit more about that. What's on your mind? Let me get this idea that I wrote down when we were talking first, uh, talking about dimming. I just thought, you know, if you ever wanted to be passive aggressively hate on your boss, just listen to dimming or read some of his books because it's like, yes, 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 yes. <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah, definitely. That's what that guy's doing wrong. Okay. So uh, situational lean. Um, the, I, I've got a couple of different analogies that I like, but the one I like the most is let's compare it to if your company wanted to be a professional weightlifter, right? So the, the big guys are like Toyota or something, you know, it's, it's the big lean, the, you know, the, the gold standard apparently. But if you're a professional weightlifter, like Arnold Schwarzenegger or something, and you can't go out on day one or two and lift 350 pounds. It's, it's not going to happen. So you go out, you try to lift that weight and you pick it up and you go, you know, this is stupid. This, this, this doesn't work. And uh, let's go back and do something else. And the guy standing beside you is going, yeah, I told you it wasn't going to work. There's no way we can lift that weight. Uh, they've, they've got such a certain situation and stuff. That's they're different than we are. So we'll never be able to do it. Uh, but yeah, it's, it's, it's situational because your situation at that moment, is maybe you can lift 80 pounds. You know, you can only do this small part of it. 
and you can work up to that, but you can't start where you think other people are. We now go to a brief quote from Dimming, played by Christopher Walken. Guys, the beads, you know. There was almost Bill Cosby there. That was a terrible impression. That was a good one. I was liking it, man. You got to finish it. Yeah. We'll put that in the video. Yeah. Guys, beads, the red ones, don't do it. You're fired. Get out of here. <laughs> One of the things I loved when you introduced yourself, James, or noticed, yeah. I shouldn't emotively say loved right out of the gate, but uh, is that you had an affinity for accounting. And I think that people that do, as I am one of these people, it's like we tend to see the, the facility, like we're, when we're at where the, at the yeah. gimbal, where the work is, in dollars and cents. Like you sit there yeah. and look at it and you're just, you're dropping quarters out of your metaphorical pocket, just thinking it through. And I think that people that lack that strong foundation and affinity, mm -hmm largely miss what it is we're trying to do so yeah. it means a lot that you said that well yep. i'm gonna i'm gonna shoot you right in the foot and and say i have a disaffinity for cost accountants <laughs> good <laughs> we, we agree on that then yeah oh, okay because um, i feel kind of weird because i have this i think i picked it up out of the goal and it was uh i i i don't have a better term for that maybe you guys can help me because i don't know who it is or what to call them, but it's the it's the people who make decisions based on price or based on some other factor without without taking the, the full set of circumstances. We call mind. those we call those here. Yes, <laughs> but there's plenty of those. But it's the the kind of a hole that will will set up your your accounting system where, like I worked in fast food, where your metric was your manpower versus your sales for that hour not the day not how well you did or how your sales increased but for that hour what was your ratio to manpower to and if you didn't hit it that hour then you you failed and so you were constantly looking to cut people off you know out of your restaurant to try to make that manpower thing yeah we could we could probably have a whole show on yeah just on that yeah yeah absolutely um so yeah lean uh and all of the tools we might use for continuous mm -hmm. improvement being situational i love the uh, weightlifting metaphor so you know you probably don't know but i That's used all. to train for your plumbing <laughs> i used to train for strongman <laughs> and uh, still, still hit the gym, you know, I like to stay in mm -hmm. shape, uh, and it's fun. Um, but strongman and powerlifting and probably Olympic weightlifting, although I've never tried it, but it, the methodology is pretty much the same, which is you do a motion and you do it heavier and heavier until you fail. Right. When you fail, you know, why, you know, what, what failed. So you might squat and then you put another plate on the bar and you squat and you do that until you can't get three green lights in in powerlifting um and okay so why did i fail did i get down to the bottom and couldn't come back up did i get halfway up okay so it's my posterior chain or it's my hamstring specifically or my lower back you know um that's what's weak and then you implement what they call supplemental exercises to build up whatever part of the strength chain is the weakest link right uh, and you just do that over and over and 
you know, if you're intentional and knowledgeable and controlling your other variables like sleep and, and uh, diet, right, you can gain strength surprisingly quickly. Um, so you might have Thor Bjornsson, right, from Game of Thrones, right, the mountain. He's lifting way more weight than I am, and I'm lifting way more weight than the little lady who lives down the street, right? We might all be able to use the same theory right. of progressive overload to get stronger, but the supplemental exercises we're doing, that's the thing that makes us better and gets us to the next level where we can test our strength again, right? And it's going to be completely different from individual to individual. In the same way with organizations, I love the love the metaphor, you know, your overarching theory might be similar, like lean theory, but where you need to put the work in those supplemental exercises is very situational. So, you know, I've worked in specific factories where lean was sort of top down, which you can make an argument it's not lean, right? It's a, a program in the company. And they decided we're going to have one 5S event per month. And that was somebody's job, somebody's mm-hmm. a task to do that, right? Well, that might not be what you need. You're not following the process because it's really the, the core process is PDCA, right? That's mm-hmm. the iterative, um, you know, sort of scientific approach. What's, uh, where's the failure point? And then what supplemental exercises do I need to get stronger at that failure point. Yeah. So there's a lot of things in that. I mean, it's, it's um, what your goal is, uh, maybe some of the, uh, some issues that you're, you know, you, I like that quote of, I don't, it's attributed to him, but I don't know if it's that it's uh, about if I asked people what they wanted, they would have said a faster horse, you know, about cars, yeah. but the same thing with like plant side, you know, it, it's like, you've identified a problem, but it may not be the problem. It's just a symptom of something else that you've identified and you're trying to fix that. And what I've seen in some of the places I've worked is where we've got some kind of monument or that's, that's a good term for it. You know, you got a monument in your plant, something you can't move. And then you got monument people that's in your plant that they're working, however they're working and you can't move them. So you end up making processes around these people who are stuck in whatever it is. And you're like, well, we can't do that because, you know, Richard, he's he's never going to give up uh, whatever he's doing to get it done. So we just got to work around Richard. Definitely a lot of that in my background, yeah. a whole lot. And I do think like a place where a lot of lean practitioners misstep is they just try to become serial innovators. Mm-hmm. Where it's like, we're going to invent this, we're going to bring in this new technology and their whole life's around innovating. I'm like, I appreciate where you started, but time out yeah. here and let's just see what else we can do within our current sets of tools and powers and processes to solve mm-hmm. this problem before we jump straight to innovation. When we talk about situational lean, applying principles, applying tools, you made the really good point. They have to be applied towards a goal or an endpoint, right? Mm-hmm. And I used to call that the conversion rate. And in industrial engineering, sometimes you'll talk about your entitlement, right? Or your entitlement gap. So the way this process works, you should be realizing these outcomes. You're only realizing these outcomes, that gap is called the the entitlement, right? 
Well, I see a similar gap between the process outcomes and the actual goal. And what is your conversion rate from the process outcomes to the goal you're actually trying to achieve? So a classic example is just the money goal. So some companies have an accounting goal, for example, saving a certain amount of money, reducing costs a certain amount, et cetera. And so they'll invest in improving a process and streamlining a process, but their major costs are the inputs, the input materials and the labor. The labor stays the same. The input material costs stay the same. Maybe they go up, mm. right? And so they don't reach their goal. So they had some idea of, you know, what they wanted and how to get there, but they forgot the critical step of tying their improvement activities to their goal. There, there can be room, I think, for improvement without a goal, just improvement for the sake of improvement. And some examples, some common examples have to do with respect for people. A bigger break room, new televisions with bigger screens on them. Like those are just sunk costs, but that's part of just being human. I right. mean, these guys are spending their whole life here. They spend more time here than at home. You know, if you, if you ignore the time that you're asleep, right, you spend more time at work. So let's get some more comfortable chairs in there, right? That's an example of an improvement that isn't tied to a goal. It's very, um, it's very touchy feely. Like the goal is to make people feel better. Um, but you can't really measure it, right? Hi, everybody. I'm John Thacker. And I'm Jake Harrow. And we're the hosts of A Quality Podcast, which you already know because you're watching this podcast. We have some exciting news for you. After years of helping companies win at lean, continuous improvement, and operational excellence, and branching out into the consulting space, Jake and I are excited to announce that we have formed our own consulting partnership Please give us a visit at www.zoomopex.com, which I just put across the bottom of the screen. We'd love to get in touch with you and talk about how we can help you win right now and in the future. Win right now and in the future. Right now. And in the future. So when we talk about lean and how we're going to do it and continuous improvement, whatever tools we're using for operational excellence, there can be some improvement for improvement's sake, uh, but for the most part, you have to have a target or a goal and you have to tie your improvement to that target. And I worked for a company that required a board where in the operation we were um, changing something. We, we called them projects, but they weren't managed like a project. So uh, that was just a convenient term for we're working on something and you had to have a board that showed here's the baseline metrics and here's what we're trying to accomplish and here's how we're doing it. And it was, it was really uh, well done. I really appreciated it. They would put up photographs of the team members doing stuff, um, kind of document the change and before and after photos if it required or, or, or suggested that sort of thing. Um, and then the final, final metrics. And everybody was aligned on what we were trying to do. Mm. So we had this one work cell and, you know, this is sort of theory of constraints, right? But everything was in line. It was a, a linear process, right? And this particular work cell had a, an output rate that was one half of the next 
slowest uh, piece of the chain, the critical chain. And the project was to improve the velocity, you know, through this particular work cell. And the whole team was involved and we had a, a project board up there. We had before and after metrics and, you know, we did really well. I think they came close to doubling the velocity through that uh, cell. And there was a you know, great team that involved some engineers and, you know, the, the packaging team. So this particular cell uh, involved repackaging materials. So mm -hmm. you had inputs, you had uh, packaging inputs, you had original packaging trash outputs, you had finished goods, repackaged outputs. Um, so it was a, it was a little complex and the way that this company was able to document the improvement, it just kept everybody focused and they were actually able to convert the effort and energy into what they were trying to do. So very situational, you know, highly specific. Now contrast that with a company, I'm not tattling on anybody right now, but a, a company that may or may not be fictitious, um, where they decided we are going to buy these boards that are pre-branded with the company logo and we're going to install them in the plant. And here's the first five steps, the first five lean steps. You're going to start by putting these boards up and then you're going to do a 5S event and then you're going to do this. Um, needless to say, the outcomes were dramatically different from the first example, not least of which was no change in business outcomes. Um, as well as some confusion from the employees. They kind of didn't know what was going on, what the purpose was. It just became part of corporate culture. Like there's these, you know, ninjas that run around and, and just do stuff and we call it lean and it looks pretty and it has the corporate logo on it, right? So James, tell me a little bit, you know, about your experience with stuff like that and some of the why uh, that you speculate behind that and some of the outcomes? I think that is a, it's a function of culture and it's a function of where you are in your process. And like the first example you gave, if you've got time to do it and you're, everything's kind of okay, then you've got time and everybody can kind of focus and do the project. But if your house is burning down around you, then it's, it's, it's hard to bring in something like that and do it because well, you just can't put any effort into it, really, because you got all these other problems. <clears throat> now, the other thing is, even even for me in some of the positions I've had, is you, you're given tasks, but uh, you can do things as long as you don't affect the overall, like, as long as you don't rock the boat, you can move the chairs around, and then hopefully you'll get some kind of improvement. Um, and then so you get somebody put in, and it's like immediately you're, you know, not them, but they're those improvement people were either on their own or they've put into a system like, you know, Deming says, you're not, uh, you work in the system you're given by your management. They, they've put in the system and then immediately find out they don't have any teeth to actually do anything important. And so instead of going to find another job where you actually can do something important, you find things that you can do that uh, will not, you know, upset Richard. De well, no. <laughs> All right. I see Jake should now see I got this weird sense of humor. Uh, you know, you <laughs> we can definitely blame weird sense of humor on Jake. I think he's, uh, he's yeah, I about said Richard the Monument, which is like a double entendre. 
<laughs> well, it sounds like, John, if I was just listening through what you were saying there, that the company just didn't truly know how to win. And if anybody's curious and watching our show today, there's a nice book I'd like to recommend on the subject. <laughs> nice. This is John Thacker's Zoom, How to Win as an Operations Supervisor Right Now, and uh, teaches you those lessons that you might skip over. If, uh, okay. All right. Win. All right. Um, yeah, I I don't know how to take that. Um, so shameless plug, man. Yeah, I, I'm glad I, I was a. I've, I've spent about four years as a supervisor, uh, one in, in a route service, and then uh, about two years on a as an injection mold supervisor. So on the floor working experience, and uh, yeah, it's it's hard if you're if you're uh if you're fighting fires or if you're just trying to get your day run and then come along and you know you got four boards to update because the, the lean guy come in and put them up or mm -hmm. it, it's more even more frustrating when you have to update stuff that nobody ever looks at as a oh yeah as an operations yeah. guy you know i checked those boxes but if you looked at what i checked uh as you actually like you, you can stand here and look what I checked and then go like this and look down the way. And it's like, no, that didn't get done, but it's checked on the board. So we're yeah. done. Yeah. No, that's a, that's a big problem that I've, I've witnessed mostly with companies that have a business operating system and a, a mm -hmm. clean platform with, you know, bronze, silver, gold certification. It just, it just turns into a checklist. Uh, it's something we do. Um, so I like to play a game with clients and companies um, and just for fun, it's called what's the what's the least viable instantiation of an idea. Sometimes we will jump directly to the Cadillac, but I I'm just trying to get to work, and it's a quarter mile down the road. I can walk. Well, that's waste. That's motion, right? Yeah, but it, but it works, right? Okay, so how can I reduce that waste? Well, guess what? Here's an electric moped on Craigslist for 50 bucks. I can use that instead of a Cadillac, right? So the I call it the, the least uh, impactful, viable instantiation of a theory. So you can put the idea into practice many different ways. Um, but sometimes we only see a certain way to do it. And it's a very advanced way to do it. Right. So I want to go from being, you know, Johnny pencil neck to being Mr. Miyagi by painting a fence for a couple of months. Right. Uh, I shouldn't pick on the karate. Kid, but, I mean, it's the worst part. Like it's a complete lie. You can't compete in a karate tournament after painting fences for a month, you know. Um, but that's what we want. We want to be able to read a book and be in a karate tournament. And it just doesn't work that way, right? You have to work your way up. Or as I like to say, you can't go from neutral to fifth gear, right? Mm -hmm. There's a few gears in between, right? We just need to go to the next next level. That's kind of where the continuous improvement thing comes in, is just take the next step that you can sustain, right? Jake, I think you have some really good stories about simple things around people that we did or that you did that had some significant effect on actual metric outcomes. Now, I'm, I'm thinking of a project we did together that we're not going to talk about because, you know, 
it's kind of proprietary information, but we were able to get the team to focus on five things. You remember that? that mm -hmm. Okay. So this was a behavioral engineering project that we did very successful. The only example of success that this particular plant in this particular company has ever seen before or since where we got a change in employees' behaviors around five vectors, but the outcomes were measurable in all of our KPIs that we were responsible for as a plant, right? So Jake, tell us, you know, a little bit about that story without giving too much away. Oh, well, absolutely. It's, let me see if I can put the same level of shadows on it that you do, but <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, the long and short there, James, is what we did was identify what KPIs are failing. Obviously, a KPI is a trailing metric for whatever happened physically in the facility. Metrics come from processes. Processes are led by behaviors. So without the, the clout to really innovate and adjust what the key processes are within the facility, we just identified the behaviors and came down to four or five things. The same basic things every plant across the country will struggle with. Stuff like parking your equipment where it belongs or punching a time clock when you're supposed to, et cetera, et cetera. So we just picked the top five and then all we did was treat it like a presidential propaganda campaign where we're gonna come up with a way to measure those five behaviors. We're gonna celebrate the crap out of anybody we see doing those five behaviors and anybody against that, you know, we're gonna have regular accountability as a, as a peer group. And just that alone was far more effective than any innovation, than any process redesign, than any work cell redesign I've ever been a part of. Yeah, so an example of some of the metrics uh, outcomes in a less than two month period. So it was a two month reporting period, but we started like two weeks before this report out, right? So it was about a six week span with two months of data reporting in there. Uh, we had a KPI around damages and we reduced our damages by 40% in that time frame. Amazing, astonishing. So many companies would would give their left arm to reduce their damages by 40%. But all we did was first, we came to terms with what we couldn't change. This is important, right? We could not change the processes. We just didn't have the authority to do that. And really the, the way that the organizational structure, the customers, suppliers, and everything were set up, it, it would have been very difficult even if the CEO of the company said, change your processes right now, right? It would be a large prod project because of the interconnectedness. So we knew we couldn't change that. So then we just went to Gemba and said, what's happening in Gemba that's resulting in some of these outcomes? Okay, what do they need to do differently? What does the team need to do differently? And then we just said, here's how we're going to be the best we can possibly be. Just these things. That's all we're going to look at. Mm -hmm. Right. So that was a, a really tremendous metric outcome. The other one had to do with uh, cost efficiency. Mm -hmm. So by changing behaviors around clocking in and out, around where equipment was stored and parked, just some, some basic accountability around these things, we reduced the amount of time 
that people were spending in non-value added, added activity, which added up because we're talking about hundreds of employees, right? It added up. And then also it immediately made non-compliance visible. So before that, there was such a mess around getting equipment at the start of the shift that if somebody was loafing, you couldn't tell. Right. All of a sudden, the guy that for the last five years has been clocking in and then going and hanging out in the break room and you know eating his Twizzler while he waits for the mess to die down so he can go get equipment without all of the people that he doesn't like, right? All of a sudden, you can see that, right? And so we saw pretty significant gains in cost efficiency as well. You know, not 40%, but it was like 3%. That's pretty good for six weeks of work. I think, I think anybody would mm-hmm. you know, look for that. Um, so great example, I think that was a great example of situational continuous improvement where we understood multiple theories that contribute to a CI environment, multiple disciplines, but we didn't say, okay, here's the path, guys. First, we're going to get our visual management in place and have a, a visual management wall and, and make it pretty. And then we're going to 5S the crap out of this place. And then, you know, instead, we were able to apply the theory because we understood it to where we were actually at and get results right now. We, you know, win right mm-hmm. now is one of our mottos and build a platform to be built on in the future as well. Right. James, you got any big work wins you'd like to share? Well, when I was when I was in injection molding, um, just by taking taking some ownership of how everything ran, uh, I think we were running at like sixty five, and I got it up to like our OEE up to seventy five percent. But that that come from just kind of uh, being proactive and the start of the shift with okay, coming in and looking at schedule and then figuring out how everybody's going to be. And then uh, yeah, proactive is the word of uh, being a little bit ahead of the, the situation as opposed to behind the situation and, and taking ownership of the, the actual schedule and how it ran. You know, like I'd work with the schedulers a lot to say, all right, well, here's the situation. Here's how many people I've got tonight. You know, I, I may have to shut something down or uh, what do you what do you really, really need? versus what if you're just running because uh, we're, you know, we don't want to run it on Friday. So we're going to run it tonight. And then uh, verifying materials and working with uh, some of the training with the lead tech people and the group leaders and the, the employees of just running it proactively. <laughs> yeah, the hardest thing to do is use that long brain to abstract how the day is going to go and plan accordingly. Yeah. Manufacturing consistently struggles with that. Yeah, I I love that story uh, for a couple of reasons, right? One of which is just saying the word proactive, right? That's that is the key to operational excellence is how far ahead you can actually plan for stuff. And that is related to repeatability and reliability, which is why you have statistical process control and all of these uh, fancy tools. People forget that the entire purpose of that is predictability so I can be ahead of the game, right? Uh, predictability is is amazing. Um, the other thing though, when we are talking about making improvements I had mentioned earlier the minimum viable product, right? That's that's what I stole that from, right? From the world of software engineering. 
minimum viable product is what can I get out to the market that uh, at least works, right? I can right. make it pretty later, I can fix it later, right? So minimum viable instantiation of a theory. Let's play a game. We're gonna improve a business process right now, right, as a group. So we have a fabrication shop and when the team starts in the morning, they have to check out a handheld electronic device that they use for scanning materials, um, accessing BOMs, uh, updating inventory and stuff as they work, right? Tracking the productivity, all of that. So they come into work and they're looking around and this guy left his on this desk and most of them get put on the supervisor's desk at the end of the last shift. And, you know, they're spending 15 minutes getting set for the day. That's the current state, right? Well, you can imagine a perfect state scenario where an employee walks through the door, a retinal scanner pops out, lock, logs them in, clocks them in, right? And this arm comes down out of the ceiling and it's got their handheld device and they grab it and, you know, it's it's Lego City, you know? Everything is awesome. Everything is cool. Everything is awesome. Um, everybody's happy, right? <laughs> so, that is science fiction. It's a wonderful science fiction, but emphasis on the fiction, right? What's the MVP, minimum viable product? And the first thing is just identifying, you know, I don't, you don't, you don't have to classify the types of waste. You just see the waste. People are standing around doing nothing because they're looking for their stuff. So I need to know where my stuff is in the morning and it has to work. You know, I don't need Johnny over there. I can't get the, the, screen to come up when I tap with the pen, it keeps chasing the cursor around. You can tell I've actually done this before, right? You know, and then do I look like a fucking IT guy? Come on, man. You know, I don't know how to figure you use it every day. You tell me, right? Um, and it's a downward spiral from there. Next thing you know, it's lunchtime. You haven't got anything done. Right? So the equipment has to be immediately accessible and it has to work. That's it. So how do you solve that? Right? So non-minimum viable product, you've mm -hmm. got the old, you know, 1960s union labor uh, cage where you pay some guy to sit there and guard this stuff, you know, and somebody comes up and it's like, let me see your ID badge. Now I'm going to write it down in a log. Does anybody read that log? Give me one reason why you're writing that name down. How about if I have a question, I can just ask and be like, yeah, Bob was in here today. And then I, I hand you the equipment through the cage, you know. Mm -hmm that's slightly reminiscent of high school or possibly a state prison. Um, and we can, we can go to work, right? Um, obviously a lot of cost involved in that as a solution, but it might be the only thing you know, right? So let's do some IE here, man. What, what are some alternatives? I don't know, but your, your, your example of the, like the, the retinal scanner and stuff, <laughs> yeah, thinking about this industrial engineering dystopian future novel i thought he said ret rectal scanner and i was freaking out at first that's a, <laughs> well um, that's a idiocracy yeah i i don't think um yeah. <laughs> Let, uh, <wow. laughs> i know some never mind <laughs> If the <laughs> James, how do we make this situation better? Finding your RF devices in your manufacturing shop. I, I don't know. That that's that's like 
it's radios has been the places I've worked that people are hunting for radios. Like, let's make them radios, radios. for the purpose of this radios. conversation. This is radios. Radios. How do I, how do I make it work? How do I know where my radio is at all times? Well, let's start with talking through what we need and the minimum viable product. So what I need is everything in one place and I need it to work. So here's the minimum viable product. The supervisor comes in five minutes early and checks every radio to make sure it works. At the end of the shift, the supervisor walks around with a cardboard box and everyone puts their radio in it. Or you just yeah. mount the radios on the port list. Yeah. Worry that, about it. that minimum viable product that we just shared yeah. uh, is actually completely feasible for everybody in every situation. Like one yeah. can do that, right? And it actually doesn't have much cost, especially since you're probably paying your supervisor salary. So fuck him. He can come in five minutes early. You know? <laughs> or you're just paying for zip ties to go with James's route and just mounting them to a yeah. forklift or what have you. Is I this- mean, it's a no cost solution. But mounting them to the fork truck doesn't have a test feature. That was one of the things you identified. Gotta make sure the subtitle of your book. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> um, Rectal scanners and radios by John Thacker. <laughs> Operational supervisors, fuck them. Yeah. Their salary. <laughs> hey, look, but that's I've worked Just in places where here. the management was like that, you know. The, well, the, and I, I'm able to joke about it because yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm a supervisor, and that's how I was treated, you know. And now I'm on a mission to make sure right. nobody gets treated that way again, right? Um, but. But let's say that that's the minimum viable product and you just yeah. do it. It's a just do right. it. I've literally done this. Like this is a solution I've done, right? Yeah. Throw it in the damn cardboard box. And then at the beginning of each shift, click both buttons and hold them together. If they squeal, they work, you know, <laughs> move on to the next one. Um, but well, then what's the next step, right? And the next step is distributed workload. That means that the individuals using the equipment are testing their own equipment. You know, at one point we had to put in a sanitation protocol because of COVID. That was new. Mm-hmm. Um, and eventually you can evolve to where the employees are holding themselves accountable, right? I'm going to put the radio back here every time. And I'm going to test it and make sure it works before I put it back. One of the things that's going to empower that is my employer has a process for broken equipment where I don't get punished if it's broken, right? I'm not going to get James, out. why'd you break your radio? Exactly. Right, right. Or and, two or three radios get broken, and then it's like, these guys are just breaking these radios. Why don't we even have them? There's, there's, yeah, these, yeah, these exactly. These radios $150 a piece, $200, they're breaking them. Yeah. Uh, it's just a pain in the ass. So you guys are just going to have to, if you can't not break them, then uh, you're just going to have to deal without them. Yeah, and it's $2,000 a day in the communication because now guys are traveling back and forth across a gigantic warehouse. Yeah, yeah. That's called uh, cutting off your nose to spite your face. That's what that's called. So true story, you know, I I came across a fellow who was um, uh, deconstructing a fork truck mounted radio to take Mm -hmm. for his truck. And... I just asked, what are you doing, man? He's like, well, my radio doesn't work and I need it for work. And this truck has a working radio. So I'm taking this, this, and this. I'm like, right. I'm proud of you. You solved your problem and you're getting right back to work. That That's pretty cool. But then I went, you know, back into the management group and asked, you know, why does this guy have to do that? And the answer was we had, you know, a Fred Flintstone era method 
for repairing and replacing mm-hmm. broken radios and radio parts. And I had parts of radios sitting in my office that had been sitting there for six months. Right. Well, we have to fill out this form online and blah, blah. And, you know, there's a warranty, so we won't have to pay for it. But the process is long. I'm like, we're paying for it right now. Yeah. How much I'm paying in labor while this guy doesn't have a radio? Go to Radio Shack, buy a radio and give it to that guy. I don't know. Is Radio Shack still a business? But No, anyway, it's not. You know, I, I just dated myself, so um, I guess they'll never be a sponsor. Um <laughs> This message brought to you by Flintstone. Are your processes yubba dubba do? <laughs> <laughs> um, so I like that exercise. I like doing exercises like that because, you know, people that read books and, and see factories in action sometimes dramatically misunderstand lean, right? And what it is. James, fantastic yeah. conversation. It's hard to believe that it's already been an hour Really appreciate you joining today. Do you have any words of wisdom or final thoughts for our listeners out there? Predictability in your lead process, like if you got an assembly line or something or or an injection mold machine or, or something, but predictability in that process and how it affects everything else. And then you talked about uh, you've got a process to do something, but the process is too cumbersome. So people just work around the process. So your process is to work around the process that you set up to fix the thing. So you get all this other weird stuff. And then the, the third one was uh, scheduling uh, equipment, um, like injection mold machines are, it, this was at a, 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 a CNC shop. But uh, once you have scarcity in your machines, then your planners or the people scheduling become like wolves. And like your your machines are your sheep, and then the wolves end up. So you you might get a strong planner who's like, "That's my machine. You don't schedule anything on that. I've got this stuff set up." And then the other, so you get like an alpha wolf that schedules everything, and he's taking care of his needs for the next six months, or her needs. And then everybody else has got to kind of like work around and take the bits and bits and pieces of of what's left over now that there's scarcity, and uh. So that that's just a metaphor you can dive deep into, but basically they're consuming all the resources and then you can't get done what you need done when you get it, need, when you need it done because there's scarcity there because the planners eat it all up. Um, that's, that's kind of weak, but I, I, I like that when I was thinking about uh, scheduling things through a, uh, that CNC shop. Yeah. Great. We appreciate the insight. We appreciate the conversation and humor. Thanks so much for joining us. Thank you for asking me on. I, I really appreciate it. Yeah, absolutely. Fun. For, for everybody out there in YouTube land, thank you for joining a quality podcast. Goodbye. <laughs>